Good morning, church. It's a joy to be here this morning. It's a joy to be here anytime to be in the Lord's house. And it's a joy to be here with you. We're going to look at Matthew 19 this morning. Before we do, if you don't mind, I know you don't, I'd like to pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you this morning. Privileged to be in your house, in your house. Privileged to sit at your feet, no, in your lap. And privileged to be able to tell you how much we love you. And this morning, Lord, in addition to telling you how much we love you, we are asking to be transformed by what you have for us this morning, to be more like Jesus. And we know, Lord, it's not by our might, but by your spirit. So thank you, Father, for what you will do this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19. And um, as I begin, just a quick overview of the chapter. Jesus continues his final journey into Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem, Judea has always been a dangerous place for Jesus, as we will see. And the, one of the first things that happens when he comes in to the, into Judea, which is where Jerusalem is, is he is tested by the Pharisees. Then he blesses the children. And then he teaches that obedience is required to enter into God's kingdom. He assures his his, uh, disciples that all things are possible with God. And then he talks about the uh, the last being some of the first. So let's start in verse 1. Well, before we do that, I'm sorry. You know, in Matthew, it's not since chapter 4 that Jesus has come to Judea. If you will remember back then, All of the children in that area in Judea under the age of three were ordered to be killed to try to do away with Jesus. He, with his father's wisdom, went to Egypt. And when he returned, he returned to the northern kingdom where he was still safe. Judea was and still is a dangerous place for Jesus to be. As we have seen, while Jesus was in the northern kingdom, his ministry followed the example of Elijah. And now as he enters into Judea, it's fitting that this Jeremiah section of Matthew is introduced by a dispute concerning divorce. You may well remember that Jeremiah was the prophet who delivered the writ of divorce from God to Israel. So starting in verse 1, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Where is there? 
Judea. There is Judea. That's where he is. And you will notice that even though Judea is a more dangerous place, he doesn't back down. He doesn't stop demonstrating how much God loves his people. It doesn't say that he healed fewer there as it, has, as it did when he was in Capernaum. It says many followed him and he healed them there. I think sometimes when we feel like we're in our Judea and there's the opportunity to demonstrate God's love, I think sometimes we hold back because of the fear. But Jesus didn't let the fear overcome him. In fact, fear is cast out by love, by God's love. And God's love working through us to touch others with his love. So when I feel afraid, I go back to God's love. And knowing how much God has loved me, I know how much God loves whoever it is he has brought before me to demonstrate his love to them. So, you know, I I remember um, someone said, you know, temptation is not sin. Temptation, (laughs) temptation comes but it's what we do with the temptation that matters fear is not sin in and of itself it can be temptation but what we do with the fear is what matters and like everything else I cannot get rid of fear by myself in me it's impossible but when I focus on the love of God it becomes possible it becomes reality the fear flees and God's love flows forth going on in verses 3 through 9 the Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason and he answered and said to them have you not read He who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they no longer are two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command uh, command to give a gift of, of divorce and to put her away. And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, that would be fornication, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. The Pharisees here are hoping to get Jesus entangled in a dispute over divorce because the Jewish people would weigh what Jesus said against what the Old Testament says about marriage and divorce. 
let us consider some of those scriptures as well. In Genesis 1, verses 27 through 28, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again in Genesis 2, verses 23 and 24. Then man said, This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I picture when Adam first saw Eve, he was like, yes, finally. This is what I've been waiting for. This is what I've been looking for. Proverbs 18, verse 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I wonder if there's a verse anywhere that says, she who finds a husband finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Uh, I won't go there in this sermon. Um, Proverbs 31.10, an excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The Old Testament taught that marriage was intended to be a permanent covenant, covenant, covenant excuse me, covenantal relationship with a man who was to protect and provide for his wife, and a woman who was to remain monogamous to her husband. And Jesus affirms this in verses 4 and 5. And then Jesus calls his disciples to follow God's original design for marriage. Rather than ignoring the Old Testament, he shows them the passages concerning divorce, that the passages concerning divorce have to be seen in the context of God's original design for marriage. And that design was for a lifelong union. But he made provision or adjustments for sin because he knew the hardness of our hearts. Now, you know, the discussion of divorce in the Bible, there are a number of things about it. One, it's a sensitive area. Two, it takes a deep study into the Greek and Hebrew words that are used here for uh, um, unfaithfulness. The words aren't as simple as we think they are when you delve into them. And we, too often we define divorce in a very, very narrow scope when actually it should be a narrow scope but not a very narrow scope because of what those words mean in the Greek and the Hebrew. And I would love to go into it, but I have a whole rest of the chapter of Matthew 19 to cover. So we'll have to leave that for another time. But I want to be very careful, especially for those who may have been divorced and remarried, that the way the world typically thinks of sexual or of unfaithfulness or of divorce. Sometimes we put too heavy a meaning and a hand on it that God never intended. And while we don't want to take divorce lightly, there is more provision 
for it than much of the church gives credit for. So please don't be, don't feel condemned if you're in that situation because that's not what God intended. He wants you to be free. He wants you to live free for him. So going on, um, let's to go to Matthew 19, verses 10 and 12. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. When Jesus put this strict, very narrow definition on what's permissible for divorce, his disciples said, hold on, Lord. If that's the case, it's better never to get married at all. And he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's wound, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let them accept it. Jesus is saying some people have given up the marriage and family, the blessing of getting married and having a family for the kingdom's sake. But he also says that those people that do that are called to do that. It's not demanded of everybody, only those who are called to do it. Going on in verses 13 through 15, cue the children. This heavy discussion about marriage and divorce and, and, uh, and eunuchs, and here come the children. Then the little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come unto me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them. And departed from there. In Isaiah 54, 13, we read, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Again, in um, Psalm 139, verses 15 through 16, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed body. All my days were ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. Immediately after speaking of divorce and marriage and eunuchs, Jesus is surrounded by children and blesses them. You know, I have but one mother and father, but I also have many mother and fathers. People who love God didn't want to see this single young man floundering out on his own, took him into their families and mentored me and discipled me and loved me. And I say that, that if you have the opportunity to do the same, open your hearts to God and be obedient be that mentor, that disciple, that mom and dad that maybe they don't have anymore or they're, like in my case, was far removed from. 
It's about a six-hour drive. No, 10-hour drive where they were. Matthew 16, 19, verses 16 through 22. Now behold, one came to him saying, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I would have expected Jesus to say, Believe on me and you will have eternal life. But that's not quite what he said. He said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, Keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds like the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, that is, if you want to be mature, go, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Like the young man, Jesus believed that one can enter the kingdom only through obedience. But the real question is, what is the standard of obedience? I believe Jesus is saying that no one can enter the kingdom who impenitently and persistently violates God's commands. Obedience is necessary for entry into the kingdom and into eternal life. That obedience is a gift from God. I can't make myself obedient. You cannot force yourself to be obedient. It's a gift from God, entirely a work of the Holy Spirit. We don't obey because we must. We obey because we choose to obey. And we choose to obey because we love God. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul talks about being rooted and grounded in love. You see, if I'm not rooted and grounded in God's love, I can't love him the way I need to. We love him because he first loved us, the Bible says. And so when I am rooted and grounded, and I understand the height and the depth and the width and the length of God's love for me, I respond in the same type of love for him. And so I choose to be obedient because I want to please him because I love him. Going on in verses 23 through 29. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man enter the kingdom of God. I always wondered how you got a a camel through the eye of a needle. But the eye of a needle was a very low gate um, in the wall, in in the fortress wall. And so that's the, the eye of the needle that they're trying to push the camel through. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished and said, well, 
Who then can be saved? It must have been impossible to get a camel through the eye of the needle, I guess. But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men, this is impossible. You cannot save yourself. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't make yourself to be obedient to God. Not in your own strength. With men, this is impossible. Well, with God, all things are are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? There are many of you in this room right now that have left all to follow Jesus. And this is what Jesus is saying to you. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands, for my sake, my namesake, shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. You know, if in fact all we have is from God, and I believe that is the case, then it is our, ours to stewardship wisely. However, even the wisdom to stewardship is a gift from God. As I've already said, we can do little in our own strength. But when we remember who we are in Christ, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us by his spirit. You can do all things. I yesterday received a uh, prophecy. Um, (laughs) Seemed like it wasn't right for me. But God can do all things. And even I, though I see all of the obstacles to that prophecy coming true, and I'm just going to set that on the shelf and see what God does with it, Even though I can see all the obstacles, I know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know he will make the way if that is his word. Matthew 19, verse 30. But many who are are first will be last, and the last will be first. You know, I think we judge people on a variety of levels. Oh, we like to say we don't, but... We do. And one of the problems with that is we only see their outer wall. We don't see their heart. I can do lots of great things. But if in my heart it's to bring glory to me, that stinks. And I know that we see our own heart and we judge ourselves by our own heart while we judge others by what we see in their actions. And we should not ought to do that. While I was attending college, I attended an interdenominational prayer group. 
And one night, one of the leaders of the group started speaking, and he said, you know, don't judge those who are vocal in prayer in this group as being more spiritual than others. Because there are intercessors in this group who may never vocalize their prayer, but their prayers are more effectual, even in their silence. I believe that when we compare ourselves to others, we fall into the trap of comparing on different set of criteria than God does. And that's why we should only compare ourselves to Jesus. You know, as an all elder here at this church, I am not convinced that I'm more spiritual than some of you. I have a calling. I have gifts. God has placed me into this position. But I learn from you every time we meet. Your example, your words, your humility, teach me how to be more like Jesus Christ. When I was a paramedic, I was uh, working up in North St. Louis County, and I became rather frustrated because 95% of my calls were non-emergency sick cases where people either didn't want to pay for the cab or didn't want to wait in the emergency waiting room. And so if they call an ambulance, they have no cab fee, state picks up the ambulance fee, and they go right into an ER treatment room. And this really wore on me to the point that I finally quit and took a job down here in southern Jefferson County. I have my partner... I'll call her Barbara. My partner was a compassionate lady. She had the type of compassion that comes from having lived through and overcome a hard life. And she put me to shame. Here I was a seminary student And she had a thousand times more compassion for the people we were treating than I had. I was doing my job. I was fighting death. Those faces didn't really matter anymore. But she taught me compassion. Compassion for those people, for what they had gone through, for what they were going through, for what they would go through. I was humbled and learned from her example. First or last in the kingdom of God, I simply want to be the best example of Jesus Christ I can be. As Christians, we are called to be Christ-like. Until we go to heaven, we will not know the impact of our lives in this world. You have no idea how many lives you've impacted whether you planted the seed, whether you sowed, or whether you harvested, just your example has impacted people you'll never know till you get to heaven. You have no idea how full your crowns will be with precious jewels. 
exemplifying the good works you did here on earth. Let me rephrase that, exemplifying the obedience that you demonstrated here on earth. You know, looking forward as a 30-year-old, it seemed like such a daunting and weary task to live up to Jesus' likeness. Looking back at as a 66-year-old, it seems like there's so little time to live up to Jesus' likeness. But I am reminded that in three and a half years, Jesus turned the world upside down forever. We are not the world we were back then, not because of our technology, but because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three and a half years. Just think what you can do in the rest of your lifetime. How God can use you if you will, but receive the fullness of his love and allow that to flow through you to others. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 through 14, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press forward to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. May that be our battle cry. May that be our our motivation. It's not over. The The world needs Christians, real Christians, Christians who aren't afraid of the dangers out there to proclaim God's love. It seems like the world's getting darker to me. It just means we need to be brighter. We need to shine brighter as a body of Christ. Galatians 6, 9, and I'll close with this. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart. In this dark time, don't lose heart. In the in the, the way the world would come against you and try to squish and squash you, don't lose heart. In the darkness that's out there, don't lose heart. You are the light. And if you do not lose heart, if you do not grow weary while obeying God, you also shall have a part in changing this world for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you. We thank you, Father, for your love, for your goodness. We thank you, Father, that you love us so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for us, to not take our punishment in our place and to give us his righteousness in exchange. We thank you, Father, for the wonderful opportunity to be lights in this world while we're still here. And we pray, Father, that we would be able to fathom the depths of your love, 
that it would cause us to demonstrate your love, to be an example of your love to those we come across in this world. I pray for each person here, Father, that you would refill them with your Holy Spirit, that you would encourage them through this word and through your scriptures. That we all would be Christ-like Christians running through this world, bright lights (coughs) shining a spotlight on sin and shining a spotlight on Jesus Christ and his gift of eternal life. You are so good, God. You are so good. Lord, may your love permeate our beings right now. Holy Spirit, may you move in each one of us right now. God, may you have your way in our lives right now. Amen.